All right, another episode of the podcast. We are back with uh, another repeat uh, guest, but I'm very excited to have him back on the podcast to talk more about uh, his new audio platform, his new audio searching platform idea. Welcome back, Amit. What's up, Cameron? Thank you for having me on. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, this is a fun uh, bit of a break for me. The last week, so in Ontario right now, we have our Masonic Grand Lodge elections. Those are like the, um, the Grand Lodge is like the governing body for Freemasonry in Ontario. So right. we're electing a new uh, a new group of officers. So I've been interviewing uh, interviewing them because there's so many. I've been you know uploading one per day. But it's definitely nice to move slightly out of the, the realm of Freemasonry and into the realm of podcasting to take a break from, there's only so many times I can ask about the most important officer in a lot, stuff like that. <laughs> but, you, but you've been you've been pumping out the content, basically. And there's been a lot of content, that's for sure. A lot of content. And thank you to all the, the Grand Lodge candidates who've taken the time to uh, to speak with me. And thank you for, for speaking with me in the midst of you know, a very busy time for you. We talked a bit before we started recording. Uh, you know, I'll leave a link to our last conversation uh, up in the, the corner. But um, for anybody who didn't see it, hasn't had a chance yet, talk a bit about, you know, what IDEA is, but also the things that you're working on moving forward. Yeah, so for people who are listening, Audia is trying to become the world's largest search engine for spoken word audio. Uh, so the idea is when you log onto the platform or you open up the app on your phone, if you're searching for anything in the world, there is an audio idea or idea that comes up as a result to your search query. And then you're able to consume that audio content. Uh, we're trying to hopefully help creators get discovered more because we've recognized a big problem in the audio revolution that's happening right now is a lot of people are communicating via audio like they were in the 2010s through uh, video and through blogging. And that space is a lot of space to grow, but a lot of them aren't being discovered because there's not actually an infrastructure structure that is using keyword search, using algorithms, using recommendation features that is actually putting audio content in front of new users' face, leading to discoverability for creators. So we're trying to build that entire platform for them. Um, and we launched on April 5th. So we launched a little bit over a month ago. We have about 630 creators on the platform right now, posting around 40, 50 ideas or audio ideas a day. And an idea can be anything rooted in audio. So it can be a motivational speech. It could be a podcast clip. It could be a comedy bit. It's pretty much anything that fits an MP3 file. We're not really going after music because that's not our main goal. There's a lot of other platforms out there for music. So spoken word audio is kind of our thing. But that's, that's the basic idea. And we launched and now we're just trying to grow it as much as we can. And, you know, that, that growth, um, you know, we talked about this before, and the, the biggest uh, a component for growth, it sounds like, based on what you're saying, is, is developing, um, you know, mobile services. Right. Um, because that is how, uh, you know, so much content is consumed through phones, through apps. And I understand you've got something uh, coming up with that soon. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of research on growth, you know, because it, it, the fun thing about a startup is you launch it and you're so excited in the months coming up to launch um, and, and then you launch it and then you realize no one gives a shit, right? No one, no one cares. And then you just get punched in the face. And it's sort, it's sort of like, 
you know, when you're in high school and you're working your way up to be a senior and then you're finally a senior and then you graduate and then you're like, oh, now I'm a college freshman again. And like, you have to start life over again. Same thing with college, you graduate, then you're in the real world and you have to start over. It's the same journey with the startup. We spent, you know, five, six months really getting all of our ideas, our products out there, but then you have to really test it, put it out there and see if the world cares or not. And I think we've gotten a pretty good response over the past uh, month of launching and it's been awesome. But now it's a question of, okay, how do you grow this thing, right? You got it out there. You got the hard part done of like actually shipping something into the world. How do you, how do you care about it? And one of the key aspects of growth, particularly in a world in which content is, it, it is a growing force for how people ultimately consume things is being on, on, on mobile and on the phone, especially if you're an audio only product. I mean, the, the idea of audio is that you can do other things while listening to it at the same time. That's kind of the core reason people would even choose to listen to an audio product. So at that point, at that point, if you don't want someone staring at nothing, which they are, if they're consuming audio, the desktop and the laptop isn't really a prime place like a YouTube would be, for example, or a Reddit uh, or a Twitter even for them to consume that content. So at that point, being on mobile is super important for us getting the app on people's phones so they can carry it where they go. So they, they want to search something on idea. They can search it wherever they are. That's super important, but getting an app out to the world is also a very hard thing. So, you know, we, we think in the next couple of weeks, we'll be able to get it out. And hopefully then within two months of launching, we'll have launched the website and the app, which I'm, I'm pretty satisfied with. So what type of, uh, um, uh, feedback have you been getting from, um, your, your content, uh, creators or content providers so far? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I mean, so it, it's two sides to it. Number one, overwhelmingly, the response has been positive because people are seeing it as a new place for their content to be discovered. So for example, we have this one guy named Peter Anthony Holder. Shout out to Peter. He was a Canadian broadcaster uh, for 40 years. So he did interviews. Literally, he has been like 670 interviews over the past 40 years just stockpiled in his hard drive at home. And I reached out to him. I was like, hey, I didn't even know who he was. It's just, you know, he was on the email list. And he was just so enthusiastic about the product. We got on a call and he basically, you know, he grilled me about the idea. I had to answer a lot of questions. And at the end, he was just like, I think this will take my 60 or my 40 years of, of radio interview content that was dispersed through Canadian uh, broadcasting on a platform to make it alive. And he recognized the same problems with some of the other platforms that exist like Spotify and Apple, which is that they don't really organically recommend the content. People can't really search for it. So he was like, they're on those platforms, but they're not, they're just sitting in an RSS feed kind of dying. And if your platform has the potential to even get it discovered through the thumbnails, the titles, the description, the metadata, all that stuff, then it's really attractive to him. So he's been putting out all of his content every day. I think he has about 175 ideas and he just loves it. And he's grown from two subscribers to 50 subscribers within the course of a month just by being on the homepage. And that kind of proved our thesis as a company, which is growth happens when quantity of content is, is, is recommended to a quantity of users. You can't just have one thing recommended to a lot of people. You need to keep filling up the pipelines. And you know, out of 630 creators, he's probably one of our most active. So he just keeps filling it up every day. Obviously he has you know, the, the history of having all that content. So that's one of his advantages, but he's growing on the platform because of, because of that thesis. Um, so he really loves it, right? And there's multiple creators like him that are, that are also engaging and saying how much they, they've enjoyed the product. Now, on the other side, we're getting feedback about all the technical bugs with the, with the product, which uh, I expected that to happen. I, in all transparency, I didn't know we would have these many bugs, but I think that's sort of the na naivete I had as a startup founder. So like, yeah, we launched the product. There's not going to be any issues. The first day, it's like the login's not working. The code's not letting you access. You upload the audio. It just crashes. It literally doesn't. I think even you emailed us once that we, that we responded to that, that, uh, that there was some bug as well. So 
there hasn't been a negative response in terms of the actual product. There has been a negative response in terms of constructive criticism to fix these little bugs. And I think we've been super fast at getting rid of those things very quickly, but there are some bugs here and there that we still have to resolve. So overall, not too bad. Yeah, those, those bugs and, and um, like I can speak, speak for mine. It was it resolved very quickly. Uh, uh, you, go, you go back to me in a couple of days and, and the situation was resolved, but that does put into um you know, because you started off as a a content creator on yeah. other platforms, right? On YouTube, on um, the absurd acad- academics, uh, and then um, you know now you're on the other side of it. You're a content. You're a platform creator. Yeah. Yeah. What what is that that switch been like being on the other side of the the code, if you will? That's a really good question because I've been having to deal with that. I'm still the content creator because I still have to produce a lot of content just to drive some traffic and get people to care about me and still stay relevant in the grand scheme of things. But managing the other side of it, it's like it's an entirely different world because as a content creator, your goal is uh, subscribers, followers, and attention, right? And engagement, that's it. Like the platforms are there. Facebook, Twitter, Google, you, whatever. You like, you know where to post it. It's not like a question of where do I post it. The platforms are so mature, the big ones at least that we have today, that it makes all the sense in the world if you know what to create to just go and start posting. And then your challenge is how do I get guests? How do I make this content better? How do I increase my watch time? How do I do that? Like you're dealing with you know metrics of analysis that builds your personal brand, and the platform is just a vehicle to accentuate your personal brand and amplify it. It's not like something you think about that much uh, in terms of just like, you know, questioning the product. It's like, well, a lot of people are on YouTube, so I'm going to post on YouTube. Um, Now, when you're creating the actual platform, it's a whole different fundamental dynamic, especially when the platform is new. And this is something I've been researching a lot called network effects. And network effects are just so unbelievably amazing. The, The general thesis about it is that every user that you get onto your platform should be, able, should be able to offer value just by them being there and engaging on the platform to the user that came before them. So with social media, this is sort of very obvious in terms of their business models. If you have one user that's posting content that other users are commenting on, the more people that join, the more content there is on the platform, the more engagement there is on the platform, the more opportunity for other creators and consumers to follow other creators and consumers, which leads to more opportunity and monetization for those original creators, which means the platform just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The pie for everyone to eat from from a financial perspective and from an attention perspective gets so much bigger. But there's there's a chicken and the egg problem when you try to create network effects on a new platform, which is the, the creators to post content, right? Because you need the, the content to supply, but you got to get people to want to come to consume the content. So the actual demand, the consumers, well, the creators aren't going to come if there's no consumers, right? Like why would I post content into an empty abyss if it's not going to go anywhere? And why would consumers come to a place where there isn't any interesting content, where there isn't anything meaningful? So that is a huge problem that we have been trying to figure out. And we, you know, we're not the first guys to try to solve this thing. I mean, Facebook had to resolve this, Airbnb, Airbnb had to try to resolve this, but it's a very hard problem. And the way we're trying to resolve it is get people like you, Cameron, that are, that are looking at the long-term approach, which is like, okay, I know I'm not going to get a lot of followers now, but I'm taking a bet that these guys in this platform are going to be able to drive enough traffic. And once this starts expanding and, and exploding, my content will be there ready to, to, to be the benefit of, of all the things that are happening. 
So trying to think of that perspective as a platform owner now is fundamentally different because it's not about how many followers I can get. It's about creating literal tools and infrastructure and features and, and product ideas that you can launch on a day-to-day -day basis. How do you keep people engaged? Do we create a newsletter? Do we create a service portal? Do we you know, send out more emails? Are we, be too, are we being too annoying by sending out too many emails to the creators to just get people coming back and doing the thing we want them to do, which is post and engage? And trying to get people to do that is a very difficult thing in a world in which people are extremely busy. So it's a lot harder, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Do you think there's such a thing as, as too much email? Because uh, my experience in other areas of my life is um, um, like with, with other things I, I've done where this, I groups and organizations I belong to where this issue has been brought up, of, you know, people are getting too many emails or too much this or that is, uh, I, I've i not seen, I, I hear it, but I've not seen any market data to support the idea of, of such a thing as too many emails um, by and large. Like if you look at groups that fundraise um, yeah. or groups that um, political groups, especially uh, people might get annoyed by buy a lot of emails, but I don't think anybody, in my experience anyways, I don't think anybody is turned off from a product that they like because they get too much, too many emails. They would support it either way. The emails they may say it's annoying, but they're not changing their behavior towards the product. That's just my opinion on it. Cause that comes into Freemasonry a lot. This idea of how much interaction with the membership, will they get sick of us if we send them too much stuff? Right. I, I find, you know, it just in my experience, um, that's one of those things that people say it, but the behavior doesn't doesn't indicate that there is such a thing as too much interaction, too many emails. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with that. I think it's based on the context of what you're sending. So we every time we send an email to our users, we're trying to send them new product updates, features, new stats about the product, all stuff that's probably really valuable as a creator. One of the things that we're launching, and I guess um, I'll announce it here, is a, is a biweekly newsletter. Um, so two times a week, we're going to send out the, the like four or five ideas that we see on the platform are doing well, or honestly, not even doing well. We just want to get more creators featured and we want to write a short little blurb about these and like send it out to our mailing list and have people hopefully click on one of those ideas, listen to them and drive traffic from that newsletter to the app once it's launched. Um, so that's going to be two times a week, which means we're going to be emailing, you know, six, 700 people two times a week. Is that annoying? I don't know. If the content in that email hopefully is meaningful enough for them to, to consume and we've, we're introducing them to brand new ideas, which is, which is what we're doing on the internet, right? We're all just trying to learn new things and be exposed to new ideas. So if that content is interesting, they shouldn't feel as if it's annoying. Now, I think the data will tell us, you know, if we send these things two things per week and we see a huge unsubscribe from the email list, that might tell us, okay, we, we can't afford to do this anymore. But yeah, I don't think email is that much because even I have email lists that I don't care about. I never click unsubscribe just because it's like it's some it's a habit that I guess I'm not used to yet. So yeah, well, that's the philosophy of much of the internet and streaming services and all that stuff, right? Is is the I just got charged for Hulu because I forgot to unsubscribe, and I'm like, I don't even watch Hulu anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely become the new the, the model, right? That's always been my suggestion for for collecting dues for Freemasonry is. Just have them, you know, collect it automatically. Just have them click it once to give them the option to, but they're not going to. And that way you don't have to chase people down as much to uh, to collect dues. Yeah, and if and they subscribe, if they subscribed at one point, that means they, were, they cared at one point. So like, usually they're going to keep caring. Oh yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't see any indication, at least in my experience, of 
that uh, too much engagement, quote unquote, will drive away supporters or drive away fans. It seems to me that that's, that's not indicated in the behavior. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And speaking of engagement, you know, the newest feature that I'm aware of with Idea is uh, the ability to leave comments. Yep. Talk about that. And, and what is the response meant to that? Are you finding a lot of comments are being left on different creators' videos? Um, are people finding each other through the comments, uh, creators, things like that? So two things on that. First, uh, I'll answer the, the, the bottom question you had about uh, data on comments. We launched it about a week ago, so I don't think we have too much data. We've seen some stuff here and there, people commenting back and forth. Uh, definitely not enough to be able to say, yes, this feature is working and a lot of people are engaging. And that's particularly because our daily active users are not that strong, right? And that, again, that goes back to it's an audio only platform. People are just not coming to the desktop to really consume audio, which means they're not consuming it, which means they're not able to leave a comment around it. So the short answer is no, we don't see people leaving a ton of comments yet. It has some friction. It has some, not friction, traction, uh, but it's not substantial. I think the app is going to help resolve a lot of these things. So that's kind of our main focus right now. But launching comments was a fun story. I mean, because, you know, it, it we, we had the idea for comments about three weeks ago. We built a beta version of it. You think comments on an app is not that hard of a thing to do just because every app has comments, but it's actually really complicated. It's like, well, one person leaves a comment, the other person has to leave a response, but what if that person leaves a response to the response? How does the database and the infrastructure of the technology we've built account for that? How do we send the right notifications to people so that when you get a comment from someone else, someone else's reply, the initial root comment doesn't get a notification because that's super annoying because like, why do you need to see that conversation? There's all these different factors that goes back to your question of being the content creator versus the platform creator that now we have to deal with. So comments got delayed for us for about two weeks just because we had to resolve all these things and build out a new structure. But we got it out, right? And, and that's all that, I think that's all that you can care about as, as someone who's just building something in the beginning. It's like we launched a month ago. We, we not only got 600 people, we got a lot of the core functionality of the product out. And now we're launching basic features, or not basic features, like better features that should be basic on a platform, but that we're finally getting to launch that adds to the value of the product. So regardless if that many people are using it or not, the fact that we got it and it's working and we don't have to look at it anymore, like it's done, it's there. That's kind of what I'm proud of, you know, over the past month that we got out. But yeah, hopefully people will start using comments a lot more because that's going to be important to drive growth. Yeah, and it's just, it's one of those signs of engagement, right? It's why every podcaster, at the, you know, like, subscribe, comment, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's why, it's why that gets thrown in there. It's a, it's a way to demonstrate um, um, engagement with, uh, with one's content. I always get excited when I see an email on like one of the YouTube videos saying, you know, you had a comment, so right? a comment. And then it's always like a link to porn. So that's not as good, but still, yeah, you, you know. You, YouTube is, uh, YouTube made 7.5, uh, $7.25 billion of revenue in quarter one of 2021. And there are still these robots commenting every time you release a new video about porn. And it's like, and I know we have bugs, but it's like, goodness, how does YouTube not resolve this problem, right? It's just crazy. No matter how big you get, there's going to be issues. And it, yeah, and it, it goes to the, the, like the, the biggest issue, right, is that, you know, YouTube or any platform or anybody trying to like stop nefarious activity has to be right like 100% of the time. But the nefarious actors need to just get by once, you know, yep. and if it, it's like a constant, constant battle. Um, well, whatever. Keep even even the porn bots keep on commenting. It's much appreciated. 
fake still engagement. Keyboard. Still good for us. <laughs> still engagement. I wonder how much is it actually robots? I don't even know how that works. Or is it just people just sending this stuff out? My assumption was always it's like these bots that are just sent through the system and leaving random stuff. Yeah, I, I think it's bots. I think it's companies that want to drive traffic to like illegal websites or whatever that they can use YouTube as a point to get people there. And then they do these complex coding that somehow bypasses YouTube algorithms and then it just shoots it. And it's just like, okay, I guess I guess this is what we're doing here on the internet. Oh, coding. I have no idea how any of that stuff works. I was telling you beforehand, you know, my, my new favorite show just became Silicon Valley. I just started watching it, but... You know, I'm, I'm happy to hear you, you saying that that show isn't that out of, of left field because I very much enjoyed watching the, the last few episodes. Gilfoyle, such a great character. Oh, yeah. The, the show is phenomenal. And, uh, and, and it is exactly, I mean, it, they, they do a pretty good job because I watched some interviews with these guys and they actually went to Silicon Valley to like learn about it before they started production. So they got a good, pretty insight where they were able to replicate the characters really well. And all the stuff with dealing with lawyers and forms and, and actually launching the product. And then, you know, you see the competitor. I mean, it, it's a really good exemplification of what we're going on. And I don't even think we've touched the peak of that, you know, because people don't know about us yet. You know, at best, 650 people kind of know what we're doing here. So at the point where that becomes 650,000, then you deal with a whole host of other issues. But the process of getting there, that's the fun part, and you know, of building a startup. What would you say has been the, the most enjoyable part of, of building the startup so far, the thing that you've, you've enjoyed the most? So we have a Google form that we send out to uh, new leads uh, that leads them to watch my video that I made about Audia. Uh, and then they have to fill out that form if they want to sign up for the product. And that's I think the, yeah, sorry, a, that's the, the, the video, that's the, the one on YouTube? Yeah, that's the one on YouTube. Yeah, I'll link that in the, the description. Yep. It's about a 10 minute video. So if someone watches it, you know, they actually, you know, cared, I guess, about the idea. And the, the most enjoyable part is when I get a response in that form, which is about ravaging like 10 to 20 responses per day. Um, and those responses overwhelmingly are positive because, you know, they're, they're commenting on the forum and they're saying like, yeah, you're solving a real problem. This is a real issue. Some people have gone so far to say this is genius or this is brilliant. I try not to get too high when you get those comments because you're like, oh, I still got a lot of work to do. But those those comments every day, it, it keeps you going. You know, I always tell my co-founders and sometimes I just screenshot it and I send it to them in our chat and I'm like, yo, people want this like people like it they need it we wouldn't be getting these comments if people didn't need it i know we don't have huge scale i know our numbers aren't crazy impressive but we're we, we are addressing a problem that other companies are not solving and if we are quick enough to keep building what we need to do and quick enough to just keep growing at a decent pace then it's going to take off and you just that that's sort of the mental health stuff of being a founder it's like you got to keep believing that there's enough demand for what you're doing and, and genuinely believe that the thing you're building and the people that you're building it with have the capabilities to resolve that that issue, which I think we do. And so those messages every day are really nice because it's just like people sort of validating you, saying that you want it. And of course, you always get the emails that are like, this is not going to work. This is stupid. And you just you look at those, those are like three or four in comparison to like 900 people that signed up that say this is amazing. So then you just kind of got to balance it out when you see it. It's, it's funny how the, the negative... I mean, we talked about this way back, I think, in November when you first contacted me, right, about um, one of the things I like about Idea is there's no there's no thumbs down button. Yeah. Uh, because, like, it's funny. You can have, you know, 50, 100, whatever it is, likes, and then a, a few um, 
dislikes and the dislikes for whatever reason um, stick with the, with the creators, with the person more so than all these likes, which is a strange thing. I think it has to do with the fact that a dislike button, um, like it's one thing if, uh, if there's a comment and the person says something like, you know, the audio quality wasn't the greatest. And then you go like, all right, you need a microphone. But just a dislike doesn't give you any information beyond person could have been any, you know, could have not liked your face. Like it's one of those things where it's negativity, unless it's very specific and done in a constructive way, has a weird tendency to stick with people uh, uh, much more so than sometimes positive uh, feedback. Absolutely. And two things on that. One, are you familiar with YouTube shorts, which is like their competitor to TikTok? Yes. So they just launched that. I just updated the app and like they have a dedicated tab where I can click on it now. They have the dislike button, but when you click it, it does not show you the amount of dislikes, which is so incredible to me. They have, they'll show you the amount of likes. Like on a regular YouTube video, you can see likes and and dislikes ratio. On shorts, for some reason, they don't show you the dislikes. And the reason to me is pretty obvious. On TikTok, they don't show you any negative stuff unless it's in the comments, as you said, there's no dislikes. But YouTube still has the dislike button. So YouTube values the fact that you're telling their algorithms you dislike this content. Obviously, that's valuable data to them. But they, they don't value the mental health effects that's very obvious it has on the creator from seeing those dislikes that's been proven over the past couple of years. So for us, I think we made it more simple. It's like, just get rid of the damn button. Like, wh- like why do you need the button in the first place? And YouTube not showing the number of dislikes is obvious proof to me that they don't want that new product they're rolling out, which is shorts, to still have that negative connotation, which means in the future, I mean, there's a big bet that they just get rid of the dislike button as well. Because if you're not showing it on this product, maybe you just don't show it on other people. Or you have the button, but you don't show the number for some reason. Uh, because you don't want to, you know, affect that. So I think that that's definitely uh, an interesting thing about the dislike thing. I, I think also for our for our algorithms, if you don't press like, that also tells us you might not like it, right? You don't actively have to press dislike. If you don't press like, that actually gives us some data and information as well. So that's the first thing I want to say. The, the second thing is, yes, we've gotten some really good emails, like like five bullet point emails that say, Here's why I think this is going to fail. Here's why I don't think this is going to work. Here's why I, I have a problem with this. And that stuff is really, really constructive and really, really interesting because you're seeing perspectives you don't usually see. You're getting out of the echo chamber. Um, but then you have some people that are just like, well, you can't compete with Spotify. And I'm just looking at it and I'm like, you, like we, we knew Spotify was a thing before we started it. It's like, it's not like we didn't know that there was this company named Spotify. It's like, obviously we feel there is a fundamental difference and there is a uh, difference in marketing, execution, product, whatever it may be. The value proposition we have is different and we think that difference is good enough. So when people are just like, this is not gonna work because you can't compete. It's like, well, if every startup felt like that, there would, there would be no new companies, right? You, you have to have different innovators that come and ultimately challenge things. So I love, the constructive criticism, because I try to criticize the product every day when I go for a walk, I just try to beat down why won't this work to myself. Um, but when you get, you know, people just saying stuff that doesn't seem well thought out, you're just like, well, I don't even know if I should engage with this because it's not worth it, you know? Yeah, no, and it's, it's hard because there's nothing, like there is nothing to engage with, right? That's the right. challenging part. Like if there's a specific, um, you know, if there's a specific whatever it may be, you know, a specific thing, like maybe somebody actually feels like a dislike button is a valuable tool. If they can at least express that, you know, in a, in a way that makes sense, and then you go, all right, well, this is a valid critique that would make us reconsider. But right. if they, you know, I want to dislike shit, bro, like, it's not helpful, you know, it's about how you, 
it's what the critique is, right? That's always been my biggest beef with the dislike button. Like that doesn't right. give me any, any actionable data on which to, to engage. Maybe if I had sufficient numbers, then you can say, okay, this video got a thousand dislikes. This video got a hundred dislikes. So you look at maybe it's a, a content issue, but even then it's not, I just feel like there's not enough actual data to make a good decision on. And like you said, you can use the like button. You know, you can, the, the ratio of watches to likes gives you the same data. Very telling, very telling. Yeah. So I don't see the, I never saw the purpose of it. Um, but I do like this, you know, what, what you're talking about, and this is something I'm trying with Square and Compass promotions. Yeah. It's like the, uh, it's the, the Elon Musk, um, um, I think he said it, or somebody who worked for him said it, but I really like the quote. It's, you know, figure out what you need first. No, figure out what you want first and then figure out how to get there. Yep. So, right, a lot of people uh, seem to have this idea of, okay, what are my resources? And then based on that, they'll try to formulate a goal. Right? Right. But that's very hard to do anything there in a creative way because you're just relying on the resources you already have and not thinking about new resources or new ways to create. Right. But what you did with Audia is you started with, okay, this is what we need. And then how do we get there? And that might mean doing things in a creative way or a different way, but right. it's that first principles thinking of, you know, figure out what you need and then put the atoms together in the right configuration, not what do we have now? Cause like you said, then you just, well, there's already Spotify, right? Right. Yeah, I think I told you the story uh, the while back when I was first on the podcast about the, the original intention for creating Audia, right? Which is I wanted to be a speaking rock star and I wanted to have my own version of Michael Jackson's thriller. So for people who haven't heard this story, really quick nutshell, always wanted to be a musician, couldn't be a musician because I realized I couldn't sing. Uh, I was a national public speaking debate champion. So I was like, how can I create a speaking album, which is like a music album, but without music, that is a creative, cohesive body of work that can potentially stand the test of time and be respected as a medium on its own outside of podcasts and just music. That's where the idea for Audia came up with. It's like, okay, we should have an open sourced audio platform where you can upload anything and it creates the brand identity behind a speaker who wants to be considered as a rock star through normalizing the brand of a speaking album. So I bring this up to say uh, that was the initial goal, as you're talking about. It's like that, we haven't gotten there yet because, you know, we have a lot of stuff to do and just bring people up. But eventually, Audia is going to be the place that hosts uh, speakers and, and their albums. So like Spotify is the place for Justin Bieber to release his new album and release singles off that album and market it and drive traffic from his Instagram to Spotify because that's the place to listen to it. We are going to have thought leaders, consultants, coaches, the, the people who have ideas to communicate via spoken word in a fundamentally more creative way than just like sitting and, and talking that are going to be distributing their speaking albums, their creative bodies of work on our platform because our platform is going to build out the brand for that type of content to be accessible and, and that that's really important. Like if the platform doesn't have the brand where this is where I go to listen or consume this type of content, then it's hard to get people to engage with it in, in, in that way. That's the North Star, right? That is the dream that I've had for, for the past couple of years. It's like, I want the speaking rock star to be exemplified and immortalized through this technology because this technology will distribute at scale that content and allow that person and allow that era of speaking rock stars to, to be ushered in. How we get there is the hard part. And how we get there 
is the fun part because we know that that's our differentiation from all the other products. You don't go to Spotify to listen to a speaking rock star. You don't go to YouTube to, you don't go to any platform because the speaking rock star isn't even a thing. Like people don't really consider that to be a, me a medium of content. So not only do we have to usher in the medium and the brand of that content creator, we have to also create the technology that is synonymous with where you go to get that type of content. And that's a very bold and audacious thing that we have to do. But that to me is our differentiator. And, and it's been really comforting at times, you know, cause I get down like everyone else. And, you know, I think of Spotify and audible and I'm like, these guys are multi-billion dollar companies and we're just three guys, you know, what, what can we really offer? And then I'm like, wait a second, they don't have this. Like they don't have this. They can have the technology, the algorithms, the data, the people, whatever. They don't have this. They don't have this idea. And me even saying this idea, let's say some guy from Spotify is watching it right now. You still don't have this idea because you're not me. And only I know how to execute this vision in the most unique and authentic of ways because it is my vision. And there's just no other way they could do this. So they could take every other differentiator we have. They cannot take that idea. And that to me gives us the ability to be like, all right, we know what we want. And we know we have to do a bunch of different things to get it. And once we execute on those things, because that is so different from everything else, there's going to be a network effect of all these other types of content coming to the platform, which is hopefully going to give us some, some ability to compete. Yeah. And you don't even need to know the execution necessarily, so long as you know the end goal, right? They didn't know, right. they, they didn't know how to get to the moon when they announced that they would do it. You know, it's the classic example, right? They managed, you know, that's always the example I like because I'm a, a nerd, but they managed to get like one dude into space for 15 minutes and then he crashed back down to earth when John F. Kennedy said, we're going to the moon or whatever it is. Like yep. they, they had ideas, but they didn't know. He just said it and then people did it. Right. And that's the Elon Musk model too. That's a lot of these guys. It's just, you know, Steve jobs yep. was famous for that. He would just say, we're doing this. And then you guys, you know, and that does have a tendency though, to, uh, you know, inspire and, and motivate, and, you know, it even gives somebody like myself, you know, uh, a lot of pride to be on idea, to see somebody say, you know, this is what we want. Um, and then to see that being executed step by step. Yeah, I mean, so much of it is figuring it out as you go. But having that North Star, having that like ultimate vision, Steve Jobs was like, there should be one little device that lets you do everything. I don't know how you're going to do it, but we're going to figure out how to make it that vision, it guides the company. Like it, it's what motivates my other co-founders because they actually believe in what I'm saying. You know, they're not just, they're like, yeah, there's going to be a world and where they're speaking albums and they're speaking rock stars and there's millions of people creating this type of content. And we're the ones building the early stages of that platform. And that ultimately coalesces a lot of other people like yourself to buy into the mission of, of, of what the platform is and what it can do. And as a byproduct, what other effects it can have on podcasters who are not exactly part of that vision, but because of the nature of the vision are just going to benefit off of it. Just like Instagram, right? Like if you're not a photographer, that wasn't part of the vision, but because it's a place for photos, any type of content you're sharing that's visual benefits you. And that's sort of the overall goal um, that, 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 that we're really trying to create here. One of the things that happened in January was we had a third co-founder who just left on us. I think I mentioned this story a while ago. He just like bailed out of nowhere. He was from Brazil, didn't respond to our messages one day. And we were just like, you know, like we're missing our third co-founder and we have a deadline to get this out. And that was an example of like, I don't know how we're going to get there, but I just know if we take it day by day by day, we're going to find another person who has the right skill sets. We're going to get them onboarded and we're going to get this thing rolling. And, you know, within four days, we, we solved the problem. So that told me at that early stage back in January, like, look, we're going to encounter a lot of problems. This is the first obstacle. But if we know what the ultimate vision is, the shit is getting done. We just have to like figure it out as we get there. 
it's yeah and it's it's that um you know it's it's the paradigm uh, or it's having a a new paradigm right like you mentioned earlier you know getting comments uh you know every now and then somebody would, would be like well there's already spotify or there's this or there's that um that can be uh in my case and i think for probably anybody trying something new right the, the most frustrating thing it's almost like at times it can feel like you're, you're speaking two different languages when you have um, this idea that's different or that's new or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, somebody else has the, for whatever reason, they just can't get out of whatever paradigm it is that they're, they're in when they think right. about, when they think about audio, they only think about Spotify and they can't think of, you know, a, a speaking rock star centric rock star focused, uh, uh, app or or site or platform right. right um that's always the trick right is trying to you know sometimes unfortunately though you you can't right sometimes the key is just have a sufficient amount of success that they see it because it's not even that they don't believe you it's just that they can't understand the idea that you have until they see it on the screen on their phone um and see see kind of the success grow what, that's a good point you bring up, and it reminded me of Andreessen and Horowitz. They're a very successful venture capital firm back in the Bay Area in the States. And their philosophy is they want to invest in companies that, that originally sound like really bad ideas. Because the whole idea here is that if it sounds like a bad idea and we can kind of get how it could become a good idea, the rest of the world will not invest in that startup, which is good for us because now we found something that's genuinely different. If it's a good idea initially and everyone agrees it's a good idea, there's going to be way too much competition because one good idea does not stay with one person forever. It, no matter how quick you are, the thing spreads. So Uber sounded like a horrible idea, like get into a stranger's car. There's no regulations. There's no taxi and they just take you somewhere. But it worked. And that's why the people who invest in it are, you know, multi-billionaires. Same thing with Airbnb. It's like, that sounds like a horrible idea. Let someone just stare at your, you know, stay in your home while, you, you know, for a couple hundred bucks. Like, that's weird. What if that person's a murderer or something? But it ended up working. And now, you know, they're multi-billionaires. So I kind of think the same thing with Audia. I think we have a good idea, but initially it sounds kind of weird because it's like, why would I go here over this platform? What is this platform really going to do? And I kind of like that because we just need enough people to see the value, but we also need them to feel initially like it's kind of eh. And that kind of eh is good enough for us because we ultimately know what's long-term value and we know we're going to be able to execute it. We just have to get enough people to buy into it, even if the world doesn't buy into it initially. And ironically, the world not buying into it initially is what's good for us because that means there's not that much competition, hopefully, in them trying to steal that, that idea. The, the second thing I want to say, though, about speaking albums, and I want to get your take on this, Cameron, is I think we have a world in which we can, we can be a platform that replaces the book. Because when you think about a book, a book is just an idea expressed in words, right? And what we're noticing is that there is inefficiencies in people wanting to consume that medium of an idea. It takes a lot of time. There's, you know, three, 400 pages at, at first, and you've got you've to go through so many publishing deals and you have to be an author and blah, blah, blah. And you have to have editing just to get the book out there into the real world. If there is a world in which the speaking album, which is like a book is 10 chapters and like, let's say 50 pages per chapter, a speaking album could be 10 talks, 10 tracks, 10 minutes per talk. If in a hundred minutes, you could get the same exact idea that you get in 400 pages, it takes one tenth of the time to create 
and 10 times the amount of impact because there's so much more scale with listening to something versus having to physically buy it, wait for it to be delivered and then read it. That I think there is a world in which I'm not saying we kill the book or anything like that, but there are more authors that recognize that they can still get the same brand equity of being that like New York Times bestseller, that type of thought leader through an audio oriented format versus a, 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 a visual reading text format. And that's, and that's a possibility where our platform can now attract an even better size of people. But you only get to that goal if you start off with an initial sort of idea of what it looks like that no one understands, and then hopefully transition to, to hopefully get those other types of content creators. I, I agree completely. I mean, I just, just started, um, I just got Audible and downloaded a couple of Stephen King books because yep. I love Stephen King. And, you know, I agree 100%. And I have those books too. Like the books I downloaded are books I already own. I just don't like carrying them around with me all the time. If I want to read, you know, the, the books, like you said, you're, you're never going to kill the book because the one thing that the book has um, is um, like the, the, the main benefit, I think for a lot of people is it's just, it's, it's a decoration, right? Yeah. It's nostalgic. Some- it's like, it's, it's there for its purpose. Yeah, I knew I knew somebody who would always purchase like she had just uh, like a room full of books, but she I don't think she read ten percent of them, but they were just there, right? And she would always, yeah. you know, it's one of those like it's a thing that people like to have because it's just, especially you know the it's just a thing people like to have in their house. They like books for whatever reason, but I think from a convenience perspective, it just makes more sense, and also even you know we're going to see this with the pandemic too. Like anything that can be moved from a physical thing, whether it's a physical item, like a book or a physical space, like an office, if you can move that into a virtual setting, you're dropping your costs so significantly. Like I'm surprised that more publishing houses aren't encouraging authors, especially newer authors to only publish digital until they develop enough of a fan base that they'll, they'll take a chance and actually, you know, put ink to paper type thing. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and the, the only other thing about audible, and this is sort of, again, where the idea gets a little wonkier is the problem again with, with an audio book is that it's a book, but you're just reading it into a microphone. So the experience of it is still like seven, eight hours of you just reading text verbatim, even if, you know, your vocal inflections are really good album, you wouldn't even be writing the book. I mean, you would be right down the speeches to have an idea of what you're going to say, but a 10 minute speech is not an hour long reading of a chapter. It's an hour long, hundred page chapter condensed into a 10 minute idea that now becomes a single or a concept of its own, an idea of its own outside of just reading hundred pages for chapter one. And that's going to be hard to get the world to agree with because we genuinely, we sort of generally believe that, you know, re- writing out a chapter and expressing an idea through hundred pages is important. So the audiobook is like, okay, if you can't read it, then I'll just listen to those hundred pages. But if we get creators to just create a 10 minute version of that, which I think at the end of the day, unless, you know, outside of most books, you don't, you don't need that many pages to express that idea. That changes the entire medium at that point, because now you're not really buying a book in audio. You're listening to a speaking album that could be expressed as an audiobook, but is choosing not to do that for whatever reason. And additionally, the whole audible $15 a month is also kind of weird for me because I have to pay 15 bucks a month and then I have to pay for the book. I mean, that business model was always a little wonky to me. But that's, those are differences that, you know, maybe we can try to innovate in the space. One of the benefits of the, uh, as we discussed, uh, 
offline. One of the benefits of the uh, one month free trial is that I got to try this out for, for free. So take that out. And you have a bunch of emails that you can keep doing that one month for, right? <laughs> yes, yes. I look forward to getting them over and over again. But um, yeah, the, the just like you said, the, the differentiating and... You know, it's funny because as you 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 talk about this, you know, I'm I'm everything new is old again. You know, you're going way old back, but for the longest time, you know, there was no such thing as a, a, a book, right? It was all it was all oral traditions. It was right. uh, you know the Iliad, whatever it is, was all spoken word. That's um, a good point. Yep. Right. The big thing, you know, what what writing did and the printing press and all that is it then just allowed it to be transmitted um, to a larger audience? It gave it distribution at the end of the day. Yeah, but the, the, the basic premise, right, of, of stories is that they were oral and they were actually created in that way. That's the interesting thing too. If, say, Audia takes off in that way, because right now stories are composed as they are written, right? You're, you're composing them and imagining them on a piece of paper right. and then it back out, right? right if right. that audio model takes off, then you're going to see, it'll be very different because stories will be composed, but not in the sense of they're going to be on a piece of paper. They're going to be composed to be listened to, which you see that in the old, all the old stories. They're very unique characteristics of those stories that have gone away because of the advent of books and literature, right? It was, there were very different ways to tell a story 5,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago. And those, it'd be neat to see those come back because that's a, a tradition of storytelling that has kind of went away with the advent of, of uh, ink and paper and printing presses. Right. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Originally, we only had our voices because we didn't have technology like the printing press to distribute it. That technology democratized the ability for stories to now be uh, visual uh, or, or like like the ability for it to be read on actual pieces of paper. And then we got social media. So now it's just text on a screen, which obviously democratizes it even more. But now we're coming back to sort of our, root, or our, our roots, or at least that's what Audi is trying to do as well, which is that the reason oral was so amazing is because it provided the intimacy and the visualization that reading provides in a, in a fundamentally more intimate medium. Not that the medium is better than reading, but reading, you read something and you visualize it, it increases your comprehension skills, your imagination skills, but it's also intimate because it's like you're reading it. You're going through the process of those 300 pages of consuming that idea expressed through words. With audio, it's the same thing, except you're just listening to it. So you're still visualizing as it's happening because you don't have anything visual to look like. And you're still going through those 300 minutes by yourself through a audio experience, which is why I think podcasts are taking off because it's so intimate. It's just that that experience may be, if we are correct, more intimate than reading. And if that's true, then there's a chance for it to be democratized even further because the democratization of it now is you still have to write the book, which takes time and get a publisher. Now, you know, with like YouTube, the reason videos are democratized, you just record, press publish, it's there. So if we could build that same infrastructure for audio and the brand, more importantly, of the speaking album, because we've got to have the brand. If it's just upload audio, it, it means nothing. Like there has to be a particular brand that is associated with how that audio is packaged, because that's what's going to actually make it work and take off and get people to buy in. Then hopefully, you know, there's a chance to even democratize audio even more. I'm just fascinated as we talk, just fascinated by the thought of, of how one would compose, compose it. It'd be, it'd be super interesting. Like you go to Stephen King, for example, right? And you say, right. all right, uh, 
create a new story, but you can't write anything down. Right. So your, your story has to be, you know, you come into the audio offices or, or wherever it is, or you record from you. Here's a microphone. Here's a tape deck. Um, compose a story, but the composition is purely done by speaking. So every time, whatever you speak into this microphone, that's the story. That's the story, but, right? Would you, and it'll never be, and you know, obviously you couldn't do it. People would transcribe or whatever it is, but let's say you could wave a magic wand and say this, whatever Stephen King creates on this microphone can never be written down. It can only be consumed. Um, it can only be consumed on the idea app or it can only be consumed, you know, auditorily that that'd be a fascinating exercise and now we can do that right because the whole point was you couldn't back in the day right. you couldn't record somebody's voice and send it out you had to record the words they chose to use in the order they right. chose to use them. but now you can actually record somebody's voice and you know everybody with a phone can access it it would just be a really interesting it'd be an amazing exercise to see how the composition of stories changes when you're not allowed to put pen or you know put, not allowed to put anything to paper, it can only exist in the auditory realm. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating point that you bring up because it's making me even think about it even more. I think from two perspectives. One, it's like if you give Stephen King that microphone in that studio, it's like, all right, what you say in here, it goes out to the world, just like what you write on this Microsoft Word document and then we print it out, it goes to the world. So he's literally him speaking into that microphone is amplifying it to millions and millions of people that are going to consume that in that way, which is a whole host of pressure that you're putting on you. Because again, you can read the transcription, but that's not the point of it, right? The point of it is to actually speak and say something meaningful. To me, I am trying to elevate that pressure to be the same level of pressure a musician has when they step in the studio and they're singing. Because if the pressure of a singer that has to sing it in the right note and make it feel good and has to be on tune with the rhythm and everything is, 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 is high, if that pressure is high, then diamonds are going to be made right under that pressure. If that speaker feels that if they're under pressure to say something meaningful into this microphone and, and compose, as you said, their thoughts in a way that you can't be 30 minutes, right? That, that turns into a podcast. It has to be like five to 12, 15 minutes. It's kind of like a TED talk. It has to be a, a, a compass, just like a song can't be more than five, six minutes, really. It has to be a specific set amount of time in which you create an idea and that idea has to be iconic enough through the stories you tell, through the hook, through the inflection of your voice, through the beginning, middle of the end, how you compose that idea. It has to be cohesive with the other set of ideas in that album or in that quote unquote book. And then how does that get into the world? I think if the pressure is high on that creator, that the content that's going to come out is also going to be very good. And that's why I'm going to be one of the first people to release a speaking album, because I think I can hopefully show a blueprint to other speakers once that part of the app uh, rolls out. I'll, I'll be one of the first people to upload an album. And I think if we can do that, there's, there's going to be a lot of speakers that are just like, this is cool. And I want that pressure and I want that fame because if I live up to that pressure, then the attention you get is also disproportionate. So hopefully that could be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And it wouldn't need to be, you know, it, um, you know, it, the, the, the fascinating thing about it from the story perspective is, you know, back in the day, those, you know, stories could go hours and hours and hours of, of one guy talking. Right. You know, the famous uh, obviously didn't last that long, but you know the famous uh, thousand and one nights, right? That's supposedly a story that took place over a thousand and one. It's just I would be I would be fascinated to see um, 
to just see a, a fictional story composed under under those constraints or those rules. The, the rule being Penn is never allowed to touch the paper. So you have to compose this story and imagine that it will never be transcribed, never be written down. It will only be, be shared through your voice, right? How would they go then about composing the story? What story would they tell? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, it takes us back to Greece, to Rome, to First Nations here in Canada, right? right. That's how the story we're told. It's a fascinating. It'd be a very interesting, very, very interesting um, experiment. Or even, you know, having, you know, the Stephen King, whoever it is, first do the do the do it by voice only right and then you know a month later tell them they write down the same story but you can't listen to what you said oh, and see right. in the process of taking the words from his voice to the pen do they get changed you know if the only rule is he can't listen to what he he recorded right. how different would the story be when it's written versus i i feel like that's a whole i feel like that's a we could learn a crazy amount about how the mind works and, and how information is processed and distributed. I don't know. I just thought of this now, but that'd be a really cool thing to see, even on a day to see like a, you know, a contest, like, you know, can you compose, I just not even write. Can you compose the best story? Right. In, right. in a purely audio format. It's all like, When you step in to record that speaking out, read off a teleprompter, right? You have to be engaging. So you have to use your words as the the, the gas, the vehicle for, for your message to be meaningful. I think in a studio-like setting, you would still have like a framework of, you would still be able to look at something. So when I made a couple of these talks back in the summer, I would like take a white paper and I would draw like a Venn diagram of all these different ideas. I would have arrows going back and forth. I would try to draw it from minute one to minute five is what I say. And then going all the way down to minute 12. But when I'm reading it, I'm not like, reading off something. I might be looking at it and it's helping me remember what I'm trying to say, um, but, I, but I'm not literally reading off something. And I think that's the difference between this and an audiobook. When you, when you create it and compose it without literally writing it down and then verbatim reading it, it becomes exactly what, you, what you're talking about, which is just a totally different experience of how it's ultimately com communicated at the end of the day versus just reading something. And, and that all, almost gives us it as if you're on stage, even though you're not on stage, but if you were on stage, you can't read something. So if you're not on stage, how are you composing that same type of experience and giving it to the world? So it's interesting, man. I mean, I'm excited to see, to see how this goes out. And again, that's the dream that keeps me up at night because I genuinely think that that is a medium by which we can, we can give a lot more people who don't have access to being a traditional author or musician, the ability to create truly creative forms of content through spoken word that's not just relegated to the, to, the, to the brand of podcasting. And if we are the platform that is the home to get that type of content, then I think we go to the moon, but we've got to do the, the dirty work of getting there first. I, I agree completely. I've, you know, very much appreciate you reaching out to me uh, uh, last year and giving me the chance to be on a new platform because uh, it gives me the chance to you know, talk about the thing that I love to uh, a new audience that otherwise, um, you know, wouldn't see it. Uh, so it is uh, very much appreciated. Yeah, it is. It has been a year, right? That's so crazy. It's literally, it was in November and now it's almost the end of, uh, well, not the end, but halfway through 2021. It's 
crazy. Time just flows and you're just working. You've been grinding out your content. I've been trying to build this thing. It's like, we're all just like headed towards life, you know? Speaking of uh, uh, my content, if you want to check it out on Audia, uh, I will leave a link in the description below. And then if you look down the bottom of the screen, I will leave my uh, uh, creator invite code. So if you use that and you sign up, that means you can subscribe to my stuff on Audia. Um, and I'll also in the description, you'll find uh, um, Amit's um, uh, link to him to talking about idea on YouTube. Uh, that's on there also. And obviously the, again, the, the link to idea itself, idea.io. And I'm very much looking forward to, like it's always fun to be part of something new and to be one of the first people on something new and to see it grow. So I'm very much looking forward to seeing idea grow, to seeing the, the mobile app and to just, you know, not only producing more content myself, but seeing the content that is being produced uh, on the site, which has always been terrific so far. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, and thank you again for all the work you're putting into this new platform. Thank you for having me, Cameron. And thank you for uploading to the platform. We, you know, we appreciate it while we're young and we're early, but hopefully we're going to get you some new eyeballs soon. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much. Or new ears, I suppose, really. New ears, right. That's what we're doing, new ears. <laughs>